Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I want to say this at the onset because I know it's confusing, but for me, I go one of two ways with this text, and I'm pleased with either one of them. I'm comfortable with believing that Jesus said all these things on this occasion because I don't find it unusual for Jesus to be horribly complicated, very difficult to follow, and confusing for his listeners. The other option I'm okay with is that Mark sampled out things Jesus had said in the course of his ministry, brought them all together here because he felt that these sayings all related to the issue at hand when the disciples asked who is the greatest. But what I want to get at here, and I think is the heart of the whole sermon today, is that there is a problem in the heart of humanity that is amplified when humans are given any power at all. Now, I've defined sin for us in the past, and so we think of sin as breaking rules, or, or of, uh, of uh, falling short of some weird high standard of glory or something like that. But I agree with the history of the church, and I think with the scriptural authors, that the essence of sin is self-obsession. Martin Luther said, sin is the self turned in on itself. He got that more or less from St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century A.D., who said sin is... Uh, concupiscentia, self-centered desire. And if that's what sin is, and we begin to read that definition through all the texts of Scripture, what we realize is that the thing that has separated humanity from God more than anything else is our desire each to be God's. We are obsessed with ourselves. Now that's a problem for an individual. But that is a terror for a power structure. Because whoever rises to the top of that structure has that same defect. And it's amplified the more power they have. And so Jesus here, I think, is recognizing that. I think he's recognizing that however the kingdom of God is going to be set up, it has to be set up in such a way that 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 in generational defect of the human being, which probably stems in some way by being created by God and being made in His image, but it's twisted in its turn. This desire to be God's has to be held in check. Has to be held in check. 
And so the first thing God's going to do to hold that in check in this text is to make sure that He always works outside of the power structure so that nobody can ever be deluded into thinking that they represent God on earth. He will always work outside of the power structure. That was our first sermon. The second thing that He does say, don't worry, anybody gives you a cup of cold water because you belong to Me, they will be blessed. So here we get this idea that those who care for the prophets, the apostles in the church will be blessed. And so that's a measure of protection. But then he moves from that into the next statement. But if anyone leads one of these little ones, these young ones, these acolytes, these simpletons who are beginning to follow me, if anyone leads them into sin, it would be better for that person that they be given a pair of concrete boots and lost forever in the ocean. Why would he say that to them? Well, remember, that's their responsibility. That's the responsibility of the apostles, is to, is to figure forth Jesus. Their self-obsession is driving their following of Jesus. They're treating him as though he's a means to power. And that example could lead people who follow Jesus into the same behavior. And so he warns them. And then we move into the strange teaching, where Jesus says, hey, if you need to cut off your arm, you do it. Gouge out your eye, you do it. It is better to have that happen than to be judged in eternity. When something as powerful as the message of salvation from death is put into play, when eternal life is at stake, it is easy to make small compromises, to tell ourselves a story that justifies our decisions. When people are entrusted with a truth that's the difference between eternal life and eternal condemnation, it's easy to justify the abuse of power. And Jesus seems to have realized that. He seems to have known from the beginning that what He was giving them was so powerful, so potentially exploitative, that He had to found a kingdom in which there would be checks and balances to keep the people of God from believing that they were the center of the universe. And so he taught his disciples that they should be ready for a lot of things that were going to make them feel like he didn't care about them. The first is that he was going to do ministry outside of their authority, even in places they didn't agree with. That was going to be hard. The second was that if they dared lead someone into sin, he was going to judge them harsher. That's terrible. And then he says these words about the cutting off of limbs and the gouging out of eyes. And I want to give us some context to understand what that's all about. In the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, these were penalties for breaking laws. This is about jurisprudence. It's about the judicial system. In ancient Rome, for stealing, you could have a, a hand cut off. For being a voyeur or seeing something you weren't supposed to see, you could have an eye gouged out. For serving in a rebellion, you could have a leg lopped off. These were the ways that secular human authorities punished wrongdoing in this world. And Jesus is more or less saying to his disciples, again, it's the way Jesus says it. He's never very clear. It's a little cryptic. But once we see the story unfold, we kind of get it. Because remember, he's been talking about the way he was going to die and who was going to kill him. The authorities were going to kill him. And you might think that in the kingdom of God, at least the disciples could trust God to protect them from their enemies. But with these words, Jesus says, I am not going to protect you. 
And his reasoning is tough. His reasoning is, better you suffer here than there. Better you be vulnerable here than there. Everyone will be salted with fire. God will use the perils of this world to keep us humble. Because what he's targeting is not their happiness, but their character. He is looking for creatures who love their neighbors as themselves. Not who judge their neighbors by how much their neighbors love them. In other words, God has promised to demonstrate to the apostles that even they, His chosen ones, His best earthly friends, they're not the center of the universe. He empowered other people to use for His kingdom who they didn't pre-approve. He judged them for how they modeled Him before His own people. And He promised that He would not protect them. Matter of fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes would argue that that's not just the nature of the kingdom of God, it's the nature of the universe in which we live. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they might see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Jesus puts it slightly differently. I've created the universe in such a way that you could never, with integrity, look at the whole of your life and think you were the center of it. In the kingdom of God, God will make sure that we think of ourselves appropriately. And He will use our suffering for it. I'm not saying He causes it. We all are vulnerable to the various sufferings of this world, but He did create the environment in which they happen. And I have to believe it's worse than it might have been because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, but it was dangerous even there because He created them, the first humans, and He put them in a garden with a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that would devastate the whole human race. That's a pretty dangerous thing. And He put them in there with a serpent who wanted them to disobey. That's pretty dangerous too. It was never safe. Not for Adam and Eve. It's gotten worse, but it's never been safe. Following Jesus is about willing to be at risk, to be vulnerable, and even to die if need be. Believing that our God can raise the dead.